This podcast is brought to you by the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Welcome to the War Studies podcast. I'm Peter Bush. Hello, I'm Sunny Horsball. Hi, my name is Adam Beswick. We have two guests on our podcast today. Dr. Matthew Moran is reader in the department. Hi, Matt. Hi, Peter. Matt is co-director of the Center for Science and Security, and I'll talk to him about this and an area of his own research, open source intelligence. And that's all a little bit later. Adam is also going to talk about an Instagram story that he did for us today, I think. But first, uh, to our other guest, Anvi, hello. Hello, Peter. Thanks for Anvi is a BA3 IR student in the department. And she organised a visit to the European Commission and the European Parliament in Brussels. And we're going to find out more about that um, on this podcast. Um, so let's get started, Anvi. Uh, tell us a little bit about the King's Think Tank, because that's how the trip was organised. Um, and how can how students get take part like yourself in in this uh, think tank? Right. So the King's Think Tank is the largest student led think tank in Europe, and we kind of function on like we have seven policy centres, and so I'm the director of the European Affairs Policy Centre, and the trip was kind of a part of our overall sort of aim to enable students to create change by addressing policy issues that they're interested in. So all policy centers sort of take up a theme every year. And our theme this year was migrants in Europe, as well as sort of identity. So based on the theme, we organize events, trips, um, involve students in different activities and try to publish them online through a blog and through um, the online journal that we have, The Spectrum. So it was a really exciting visit, I guess, as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the day? What, was, what were the highlights? What was the most exciting part? <laughs> right, so I'll start with organising the trip itself mm -hmm. because that was, I think, the biggest part. So the trip was on the 29th of January. That is now quite an important day for the UK and Europe. Um, that was the day of the UK's withdrawal agreement vote. But when we set the date, it was in November, and we just sort of emailed the commission asking them if we could visit. Got a reply quite soon. Miss um, Fabian Timmerman was very kind to us. She invited us over. At the parliament itself, when we visited, we were meant to visit um, three MEPs and three members in the commission. So it's quite divided. Um, the MEPs were very sort of, it was an emotional time to be there because everyone was bidding farewell to their British colleagues. And we were received as sort of the representatives of Britain, even though that wasn't the idea to start with. Um, we were constantly addressed with issues like why do you think this is happening? What do you study about it in the UK? How are people receiving this? And our reception was really nice. All MEPs, um, we met a Dutch MEP, Miss um, Samira Rafaela from Renew Europe Group, and a French MEP, Mr. Bernard Getter, from, also from the Renew Europe Group. And they were very informative. They told us a lot about 
the way the EU plans on sort of dealing with Brexit and the way different um, countries are responding to the to the issue. But at the same time, there's an undertone of questioning why Europe was facing this crisis. And it was very interesting to listen to how the EU was responding to it. Um, the Dutch side, for example, was quite, um, the Renew Europe group is known for being very pro-European integration. And Mr. Mayor talked about integrated democracy and how people need to have a, more of a say in these things and these issues. Um, with the French side, also um, quite an integrationist view, like Brexit was seen as a sort of way of Europe to now be able to integrate further. Um, the idea of a common European army was thrown about. So it was quite an informative visit, but at the same time, it touched really well with our theme of the European identity and how Europe was going to build itself. Would you say, you've explained a lot there, but is there a particular highlight, something on the day that really struck you? Right, so I think this points to how you can plan everything and things will always still surprise you. So at the Parliament, we bumped into my researcher Emily's aunt, Miss Caroline Bodum, who is a British MEP. She, she's in the Liberal Democrat Party. And we bumped into her randomly and she said, oh, do you think you have the time and energy to visit the parliament while you're here? And we ended our visit at the commission at 5.30 and the withdrawal agreement vote was at 6 p.m. So we said yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> ran from the commission to the parliament between our sort of 15 minute break. and somehow got to view the agreement like the vote from inside a viewing gallery so we sat next to the room where everyone was voting and making the speeches and um, explaining their votes and it was absolutely packed inside the parliament with um, journalists with just people cake desserts um, it was just a sort of environment of joy celebration for some people but a general feeling of you know farewells and goodbyes and I remember we were sort of exiting after all the speeches were made we were exiting the room and so were all the MEPs and there was such a sort of mixed feeling of just <laughs> just absolute I don't know wonder at what was going on it was quite a historic moment but it was also quite chaotic because there was, you know, there was people being interviewed, there was people celebrating, there were people crying. Um, Emily's aunt was absolutely in tears, so we couldn't thank her, but we do really, we feel so grateful to be a part of it. Um, yeah, it does. It sounds like a really great day and a great experience. And thanks so much for sharing um, the story with us anyway today. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, Henry, and, and there's, uh, of course, a blog post on, on this, and we can link to it uh, under the, uh, well, in the, in the box we have usually with this podcast. Um, and now to you, Matt. Uh, thanks for joining us from Dublin, I guess. Yes? From lockdown in Dublin, indeed, yes. 
That's wonderful. You are the co-director of the Center of uh, Science and Security, as I said. And before we talk a little bit about uh, your own research, can you maybe tell us a little bit more about the center and what it's about, the research, the teaching? Yeah, sure. So the Center for Science and Security Studies was set up in 2003 with um, a grant from the MacArthur Foundation. Uh, so we've been, we've been in operation for quite a while now. Um, it started very small, um, but we've now expanded to, we have some 20 researchers working on the various projects uh, we have, as well as sort of affiliated uh, faculty. We have, um, you know, several million pounds in, in active grants from a whole range of funders from UK Research Council to uh, MacArthur Foundation, Carnegie Corporation in New York. So quite a big mix of, of funders. So we've been quite um, successful on the, the research front. And what we focus on um, really is we're, we're a multidisciplinary center. Um, as the, the title suggests, we try to bring together science and security. Um, so we're very keen on, on what we can draw from different disciplines. So the other co-director, Chris Hobbs, has a background in physics, for example. So, you know, when you're looking at things, we, we, we look at, um, it's, it's, it's all about weapons proliferation, non-proliferation, things like verification and disarmament. And we're active in on nuclear issues, but also on chemical, biological, radiological. So all the, the security related uh, dimensions of, of this, you know, we've done work on the, the dynamics of Iran's nuclear program, for example. And there you can see how um, a political science perspective would be enhanced by somebody bringing an understanding of the technical dimensions to the program so you can get a more holistic uh, picture. So that's in, in terms of research. Um, in terms of teaching, we have one MA program um, at, the, at the moment, and that's the MA in Science and International Security. And we have, we have uh, two sort of core modules there, which are the, the science and security of nuclear, chemical and biological weapons, and then current issues in science and security. Um, and I guess the, the idea there again is to understand the, the security dimension, the security implications of developments in, in, in science and technology. Um, in our module on current issues, well, you know, we look across a whole range of things, weapons proliferation, which is the sort of specialty of our center, but also things like cybersecurity, uh, climate security, so really current issues and the module adapts um, to different sort of developments and trends or changes, changes every year. Yeah, you mentioned cyber and your teaching at uh, master's level is also on open source intelligence. Um, you're also doing research in this area. So uh, automation in open source intelligence, for example, is an important issue nowadays and something you engaged with in a recent article, I think it's called, let me look it up, Fusing Algorithm and Analysts, published by the Journal of Intelligence and National Security. Um, and in this article, you point to the limitations of technocentric efforts. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Open source intelligence as an area of study is, is fairly niche, I, I would say. Um, but over the past while, you know, it's, it's very interesting to see how this domain has changed over the past decade or so, where, you know, the information landscape, particularly online, has changed enormously. I mean, we're, we're just flooded with information um, on all fronts, really. 
And part of open source intelligence is about you know, interrogating these vast data sets that are available online. Now, I think the, the perspective that I come from and that some of the guys who work on open source intelligence in our center would be what, I, what I've called the, the prospector approach. So this idea of sifting through the mud of the uh, informational mud of the internet and looking for little nuggets of uh, analytical value. The problem is that this approach is very, it can be very beneficial. You know, you can bring deep subject matter expertise to bear on these searches and, and really get some useful information um, and analysis. But there's, there's far too much information to deal with. So the trend, um, particularly with the rise of big data and these huge sort of unstructured or structured data sets that now dominate the, the online landscape, the trend has been to automated solutions, algorithmic approaches. So how can we deploy algorithms to capture um, and, and sort of process or help us visualize um, all of the information and the links between um, online or all relevant information? Which sounds great, and I think that's absolutely a necessary direction. You know, we have to use, we have to exploit technological advancement in this space if we are to benefit from all of that information being online. There are big questions here. So what does, what does this move towards algorithmic approaches, automation, what does it mean for a more sort of conventional understanding of open source intelligence? Is that still relevant? Um, is this where the future is completely in, in automation? Um, and what does that mean for the role of the analyst? So as technology advances, does that mean the role of the analyst is diminished? And I guess the, 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 the point of the article is to, to look at that and say, there, there's a tension here between analyst and algorithm. And one, a couple of the things we sort of say, you know, there are issues here. When you're, when you're deploying these algorithms, you know, there are things to consider. There are things like bias in the construction of these algorithms. You know, do you lose out when you're thinking, is it, are you talking about a shift from causation to correlation in, in terms of um, the, the understanding you have of, of information um, and its implications. And I guess one of the big issues that we, we have is, you know, at this point, we can't yet sort of replicate the, the, the human brain, the, the process of human judgment, um, or those insights that deep subject matter expertise um, provide. I think there's, it's, it's very important to look at, at this tension and, and think carefully about it rather than rushing to embrace the, the sort of the next black box solution to, to uh, open source intelligence challenges or, or efforts. And so what we've tried to do with this uh, research is really look at, look at other, other areas, see what, what have people done um, with this idea of engagement between humans and, and computers. And one area that has, um, since the 1980s, been active in this space is cognitive engineering, cognitive engineering where they, they look at how humans interact with, with computers in different ways. And so it was, going, it was about going to that um, field and, and sort of having a look around, seeing what research has been published there and see, seeing what lessons we might learn uh, for our own context. Um, and some of it is very simple down to, you know, thinking of humans and algorithms as, as 
equally important elements in a broader uh, system rather than uh, thinking about the technology as, as the system and a, and a human sort of outside of it in some shape or form. So really that's what the whole um, article and the research behind it is about, this tension between analysts and algorithms and how we can manage it uh, at a time when there is enormous interest in, in the uh, analytical possibilities around all this information available online, um, but also a real push for automated solutions that um, seem to sometimes say, you know, the analyst isn't necessarily a key part of this. It is no longer really necessary. Maybe we can get what we need from uh, from algorithms. So it's it's looking at the tension there. And your your conclusion would be that analysts are more important than people maybe think or will be more important in the future. They certainly are more important than is assumed. I think that it's just it's about the risk that we get carried away with this technocentric approach and lose something in the process. And so, yes, analysts absolutely retain their importance, more important now perhaps than ever in terms of the design of these systems. And that's maybe often a, a challenge as well, is where you have uh, private sector companies trying to design a solution without necessarily understanding the problem that the, that, that the solution is, is trying to address. So understanding the, the customer, for, for want of a better way of phrasing it, And I think that's not to say either that um, it's very possible that, you know, there are huge strides being made in artificial intelligence, um, et cetera. But it's just a, at this point in time, the analyst remains uh, crucial, remains central to the whole process. And we don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Thanks a lot, uh, uh, Matt. And uh, thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. We're recording this on a Friday evening. Uh, I guess it's sunny in Dublin as well. It's sunny. It's sunny. Well, who knows what the weekend will bring in these uh, uncertain times we're living in. But thanks very much for having me. I think the, the podcasts are great. Um, we've got plenty of listeners. So thanks very much. Thanks for joining uh, us. And thanks, Envy, also for joining us. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. We do live in unprecedented times, and as I was getting going to bed, actually, yesterday, um, I got an email, and it intrigued me. The World Studies uh, Media Group had contacted me and said, why don't, you do, why don't you make a day in the life video, the kind of thing you would see on YouTube or Facebook, but about being a student and being at home and having to deal with dissertations, essays, uh, seminars but also trying to stay sane and try to find some kind of balance in the new environment. So I've been doing that all day and I have to be honest, it's been quite fun. Um, it's been challenging trying to sell the idea of being a student at home, looking at your TV monitor as something exciting and worth covering has been a challenge. I found myself at one point, one of the, One of the lows of my Instagramming today has been um, standing in the backyard and, and trying to throw pine cones into my empty cup of coffee that was lying on the grass um, in, a, in a desperate bid to find something interesting to do. However, I've also been wandering around and I went down to the, to the sea and, and looked around and you can come with me as well. Um, so, so 
this Instagram stories is on right now. So if you went to the uh, KCL War Studies uh, Instagram, you can check out the story. And there are quite a lot of uh, uh, contributions that I've made. But more broadly, this is less about what I've been doing today and more a bid from us in the War Studies Society to at least when this is going on. Um, allow students, academics, and other staff to record their days and to share with them their experiences, um, how they're coping with staying at home or being quarantined or somewhere else. And it's an opportunity for us to learn from each other and also to build resilience and strength. And in my opinion, also perhaps relate more to each other because even though I think that, you know, where I am, it's quite comfortable and uh, I have a lot of things easy. Uh, many people who are stuck at home don't. So um, it's a, that's important. So if you want to get engaged, please, uh, you, can, you can send a DM on, um, on the KCL War uh, Studies Instagram. Or if you want to get in touch with me, uh, you could do so as well. Um, my email is adam.beswick at kcl.ac.uk. And uh, you can uh, send me an email and ask if you want to get engaged. So, um, yeah, that's, we're Instagramming now, guys. Um, and it's for the uni. So come on, join in. Uh, Bush, am I expecting to see you uh, yeah. on this Instagram? Well, I, I, I'm not sure. I haven't been on Instagram in a while. I will, I will check it out. Uh, I will try and least follow you and check out your day, I guess. What about you, Sally? Well, I'm wondering, actually, well, I go on Instagram quite a lot, but it's more from a foodie perspective, as I've said before. <laughs> I'm a bit of a food blogger on the side. But I was wondering, actually, if Adam it might be worthwhile setting a bit of a challenge and then that might get people to share their stories as well. A bit of a sort of the funniest moments, you know, while you're self-isolating as a student. So create a bit of a challenge. I think that might be a nice idea. I think that, that is, that anyway. a, yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. And uh, if you want to contribute and you're in the war studies department and you have an Instagram account, uh, film yourself doing a challenge or doing something interesting whilst in, um, in isolation, and you just uh, tag the Instagram handle that is at KCL underscore war studies, and you'll be featured. So, um, so yeah, it's a fun idea to also get to learn about each other, even though we are in different, sorry, different places uh, throughout the world. So don't f feel free to get engaged, and uh, I hope to see some fun stories up there. Can I also do something boring? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the more boring, the better. That could be a way. That could be a challenge. <laughs> that probably wouldn't be a challenge for me, but that's, that's really great. So, so check it out. Um, be part of it. And that's it for today. So we uh, thank you again to, well, thanks again to Andy and, and Matt. And uh, it's goodbye for me. Have a great weekend and speak to you or hear you and reach out to you next week. See ya, Peter. Bye, Peter. Bye, bye, everyone. This podcast is brought to you by the Department of War Studies at King's College London. For more information about the department, visit the War Studies website at www.kcl.ac.uk slash warstudies.